Chapter 12, Part 1 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1, by Frederick Whimper. Chapter 12. Round the World on a Man-of-War Continued. The African Station. Part 1. And now we are off to the last of the British naval stations under consideration, that of the African coast. It is called, in naval phraseology, the West Coast of Africa and Cape of Good Hope Station, and embraces not merely all that the words imply, but a part of the east coast, including the important colony of Natal. Commencing at latitude 20 degrees north above the Cape Verde Islands, it includes the islands of Ascension, St. Helena, Tristan de Cunha, and others already described. Ascension, which is a British station, with dockyard and fort garrisoned by artillery and marines, is a barren island, about eight miles long by six broad. Its fort is in latitude 70 degrees 26 north, longitude 140 degrees 24 west. It is of volcanic formation, and one of its hills rises to the considerable elevation of 2,870 feet. Until the imprisonment of Napoleon at St. Helena, it was utterly uninhabited. At that period, it was garrisoned with a small British force, and so good use was made of their time that it has been partly cultivated and very greatly improved. Irrigation was found, as elsewhere, to work wonders, and as there are magnificent springs, this was rendered easy. Vast numbers of turtle are taken on its shores, and in consequence the soldiers prefer the soup of pea and affect to despise turtle steaks worth half a guinea apiece in London, and fit to rejoice the heart of an alderman. The writer saw the same thing in Vancouver Island, where at the boarding house of a very large steam sawmill, the hand struck against the salmon, so abundant on those coasts. They insisted upon not having it more than twice a week for dinner, and that it should be replaced by salt pork. The climate of Ascension is remarkably healthy. The object in occupying it is very similar to the reason for holding the Falkland Islands, to serve as a depot for stores, coal, and for watering ships cruising in the South Atlantic. Sierra Leone is perhaps of all places in the world the last to which the sailor would wish to go, albeit its unhealthiness has been, as it's the case with Panama, grossly exaggerated. Thus we were told that when a clergyman with some little influence was pestering the Prime Minister for the time being for promotion, the latter would appoint him to the bishopric of Sierra Leone, knowing well that in a year or so the said bishopric would be vacant and ready for another gentleman. Sierra Leone is a British colony, and the capital is Freetown. 
situated on a peninsula lying between the broad estuary of the Sherboro and the Sierra Leone rivers, connected with the mainland by an isthmus not more than one mile and a half broad. The colony also includes a number of islands, among which are many good harbours. Its history has one interesting point. When in 1787 it became a British colony, a company was formed which included a scheme for making it a home for free Negroes, and to prove that colonial produce could be raised profitably without resorting to slave labour. Its prosperity was seriously affected during the French Revolution by the depredations of French cruisers, and in 1808 the company ceded all its rights to the Crown. Its population includes Negroes from 200 different African tribes, many of them liberated from slavery and slave ships, a subject which will be treated hereafter in this work. One of the great industries of Sierra Leone is the manufacture of coconut oil. The factories are extensive affairs. It is a very beautiful country on the whole, and when acclimatised, Europeans find they can live splendidly on the products of the country. The fisheries, both sea and river, are wonderfully productive and employ about 1,500 natives. Boat building is carried on to some extent, the splendid forests yielding timber so large that canoes capable of holding a hundred men have been made from a single log, like those already mentioned in connection with the northwest coast of America. Many of the West Indian products have been introduced. Sugar, coffee, indigo, ginger, cotton and rice thrive well, as do Indian corn, the yam, plantain, pumpkins, banana, cocoa, baobab, pineapple, orange, lime, guava, papaw, pomegranate, orange and lime. Poultry is particularly abundant. It therefore might claim attention as a fruitful and productive country, but for the malaria of its swampy rivers and low lands. And now, leaving Sierra Leone, our good ship makes for the Cape of Good Hope, passing, mostly far out at sea, down that coast along which the Portuguese mariners crept so cautiously, yet so surely, till Diaz and da Gama reached South Africa, while the latter showed them the way to the fabled Cathaya, the Orient, India, China and the Spice Islands. In the year 1486, the Cape of Capes par excellence, which rarely nowadays bears its full title, was discovered by Bartholomew de Diaz, the commander in the service of John II of Portugal. He did not proceed to the eastward of it, and it was reserved for the great Vasco da Gama, afterwards the first viceroy of India, an incident in whose career forms, by the by, the plot of L'Africain, Meyerbeer's grand opera, to double it. It was called at first Cabo Tormentoso, the Cape of Storms, but by royal desire was changed to that of Buona Esperanza, Good Hope, the title it still bears. Cape Colony was acquired by Great Britain in 1620, 
although for a long time it was practically in the hands of the Dutch, a colony having been planted by their East India Company. The Dutch held it in this way till 1795, when the territory was once more taken by our country. It was returned to the Dutch at the Peace of Amiens, only to be snatched from them again in 1806, and finally confirmed to Britain at the General Peace of 1815. The population, including the Boers, or farmers of Dutch descent, Hottentots, Kaffirs and Malays, is not probably over 600,000, while the original territory is about 700 miles long by 400 wide, having an area of not far from 200,000 square miles. The capital of the colony is Cape Town, lying at the foot, as every schoolboy knows, of the celebrated Table Mountain. A recent writer, Mr Boyle, speaks cautiously of Cape Town and its people. There are respectable but not very noticeable public buildings. Quote, Some old Dutch houses there are, distinguishable chiefly by a superlative flatness and an extra allowance of windows. The population is about 30,000 souls, white, black and mixed. I should incline to think more than half fall into the third category. They seem to be hospitable and good-natured in all classes. There is complaint of slowness, indecision and general want of go about the place. Dutch blood is said to be still too apparent in business, in local government and in society. I suppose there is sound basis for these accusations, since trade is migrating so rapidly towards the rival mart of Port Elizabeth. But ten years ago, the entire export of wool passed through Cape Town. Last year, as I find in the official returns, 28 million pounds were shipped at the eastern port out of the whole 37 million pounds produced in the colony. The gas lamps, put up by a sort of coup d'etat in the municipality, were not lighted until last year, owing to the opposition of the Dutch town councillors. They urged that decent people didn't want to be out at night and the ill-disposed didn't deserve illumination. Such facts seem to show that the city is not quite up to the mark in all respects. Unquote. Simons Bay, near Table Bay, where Cape Town is situated, is a great rendezvous for the Navy. There are docks and soldiers there, and a small town. The bay abounds in fish. The Reverend John Milner, chaplain of the Galatea, says that during the visit of Prince Alfred, quote, large shoals of fish, a sort of coarse mackerel, were seen all over the bay. Numbers came alongside, and several of them were harpooned with grains by some of the youngsters from the accommodation ladder. Later in the day, a seal rose, and continued fishing and rising in the most leisurely manner. At one time, it was within easy rifle distance, and might have been shot from the ship. Unquote. Fish and meat are so plentiful in the colony that living is excessively cheap. 
The visit of His Royal Highness the Sailor Prince in 1867 will long be remembered in the colony. That and the recent diamond discoveries prove that the people cannot be accused of sloth and want of enterprise. On arrival at Simon's Bay, the first vessels made out were the raccoon, on which Prince Alfred had served his time as lieutenant, the petrel, just returned from landing poor Livingston at the Zambezi, and the receiving ship Seringapatam. Soon followed official visits, dinner, ball and fireworks from the ships. When the prince was to proceed to Cape Town, all the ships fired a royal salute, and the fort also, as he landed at the jetty, where he was received by a guard of honour of the 99th Regiment. A short distance from the landing place at the entrance to the main street was a pretty arch, decorated with flowering shrubs and the leaves of the silver tree. On his way to this, His Royal Highness was met by a deputation from the inhabitants of Simonstown and of the Malay population. Quote, this was a very interesting sight. The chief men, dressed in oriental costumes, with bright-coloured robes and turbans, stood in front, and two of them held short wands decorated with paper flowers of various colours. The duke shook hands with them, and then they touched him with their wands. They seemed very much pleased, and looked at him in an earnest and affectionate manner. Several of the Malays stood round with drawn swords, apparently acting as a guard of honour. The crowd round formed a very motley group of people of all colours, Negroes, brown Asiatics, Hottentots, and men, women and children of every hue. The policemen had enough to do to keep them back as they pressed up close round the Duke. Unquote. After loyal addresses had been received and responded to, the Prince and Suite drove off for Cape Town, the ride to which is graphically described by the chaplain and artist of the expedition. Quote, the morning was very lovely. Looking to seaward was the Cape of Good Hope, Cape Hanglip, and the high broken shores of Hottentot Holland, seen over the clear blue water of the bay. The horses, carriages, escort with their drawn swords, all dashing at a rattling pace along the sands in the bright sunshine, and the long lines of small breakers on the beach, was one of the most exhilarating sights imaginable. In places, the cavalcade emerged from the sands, up onto where the road skirts a rocky shore, and where at this season of the year, beautiful arum lilies and other bright flowers were growing in the greatest profusion. About four miles from Simon's Bay, we passed a small cove called Fishhook Bay, where a few families of Malay fishermen reside. A whale they had killed in the bay the evening before lay anchored, ready for cutting in. A small flag, called by whalers a whiff, was sticking up in it. We could see from the road that it was one of the usual southern right whales, which occasionally come into Simon's Bay and are captured there. After crossing the last of the sands, we reached Calc Bay, 
a collection of small houses where the people from Cape Town come to stay in the summer. As we proceeded, fresh carriages of private individuals and horsemen continued to join on behind, and it was necessary to keep a bright lookout to prevent them rushing in between the two carriages containing the Duke and Governor with their suites. Various small unpretending arches, every poor man having put up one on his own account, with flags and flowers, spanned the road in different places between Simon's Town and Farmer Peck's, a small inn about nine miles from the anchorage, which used formerly to have the following eccentric signboard. The Gentle Shepherd of Salisbury Plain, Farmer Peck's. Multum in parvo pro bono publico, entertainment for man or beast, all of a row, like a cost, as much as you please, excellent beds without any fleas, nos patriam fugimus, now we are here, vivamus, let us live by selling beer, en dans un bois et à manger ici, come in and try it, whoever you be. This house was decorated with evergreens, and over the door was a stuffed South African leopard, springing on an antelope. A little further on, after discussing lunch at a halfway house, a goodly number of volunteer cavalry, in blue and white uniforms, appeared to escort the sailor prince into Cape Town. The road passes through pleasant country, but the thick red dust which rose as the cavalcade proceeded was overwhelming. It was a South African version of the Derby on a hot summer's day. At various places, parties of schoolchildren arrayed along the roadside sung the national anthem in little piping voices, the singing being generally conducted by mild-looking men in black gloves and spectacles. At one place stood an old Malay, playing God Save the Queen on a cracked clarionet, who, quite absorbed as he was in his music, and apparently unconscious of all around him, looked exceedingly comic. There was everywhere a great scrambling crowd of Malays and black boys running and tumbling over each other, shouting and laughing, women with children tied on their backs, old men, and girls dressed in every conceivable kind of ragged rig and picturesque colour, with headgear of a wonderful nature, huge Malay hats, almost parasols in size, and resembling the thatch of an English corn rig, crowns of old black hats, turbans of all proportions and colours, swelled the procession as it swept along. When the cavalry trumpet sounded trot, the cloud of dust increased tenfold. Everybody, apparently, who could muster a horse was mounted, so that ahead and on every side the carriage in which we were following the Duke was hemmed in and surrounded, and everything became mixed up in one thick cloud of red dust, in which helmets, swords, hats, puggeries, turbans, and horses almost disappeared. The crowd hurrahed louder than ever, pigs squealed, dogs howled, riders tumbled off. The excitement was irresistible. Oh, this is fun! Stand up! Never mind dignity! Whoo-whoop! And we were rushed into the cloud of dust, 
to escape being utterly swamped and left astern of the duke standing up in the carriage and holding on in front to catch what glimpses we could of what was going on some of the arches were very beautiful they were all decorated with flowering shrubs flowers particularly the arum lily and leaves of the silver tree in one the words welcome back were formed with oranges one of the most curious had on its top a large steamship with galatea inscribed upon it and a funnel out of which real smoke was made to issue as the duke passed under six little boys dressed as sailors formed the crew and stood up singing rule britannia End quote. and so they arrived in cape town to have levees receptions entertainments and balls by the dozen End of chapter 12, part 1 Read by Jane Bennett